Steht? All right, good morning. Today's lecture is going to be somehow related to what you've dealt with uh, over the last uh, few lectures on uh, the visual system, but as you see, it includes the motor system. So a lot of what we're going to talk uh, throughout the next uh, three lectures is sensory motor integration um, related to vision, and we start with the very basics of eye movements. Just if you, normally we have a clicker question about this, but I didn't know this. Uh, I was just told by one of your colleagues that lecture number 53 is actually uh, uh, mislabeled and you get lecture number 57. So anyone who does not have the eye movement lecture, could you just raise your hand? Okay, there are few of you. I called the secretary. Uh, just before the start of the lecture and sp uh, spoke on her answer machine. She's, she was not in, but she should be in about 8 o'clock, so hopefully we get this up and running uh, throughout the lecture. And the others, I guess, uh, downloaded the old version, which uh, had the hyperlinks not working. All right, let's get started with eye movements. What are we going to talk about? First of all, we need some terminology. Uh, so we are all on the same boat. Uh, then we review a little bit what you've done. I'm pretty sure already um, the um, extraocular muscles, we think of their innovation, uh, we think of the functions or try to isolate the functions of each muscle. Then we're going to look further up how do we actually control those muscles uh, how does the cortex, for example, contribute? How does the brainstem contribute? After this, we try to classify eye movements a little bit, and we're going to talk about the first type of those eye movements, that is a saccadic eye movement. We draw the circuitry of the saccadic eye movements, uh, we also talk about uh, the neuroexam of eye movements, including the red glass test, and we're going to have some clinical correlations related to this. So let's look at eye movements, just look at one eye first, and I think that won't be a surprise. You can move the eyes pretty much upwards, we call this elevation. You can move it downwards, we call this depression. You can move it away from your nose, we call it abduction, and towards the nose adduction, or adduction, as some people say, adduction and abduction for abduction. In addition, you have marked in red, and I had to uh, put a few elements on the iris, otherwise you wouldn't see when the um, eye rotates around its axis that goes straight through the pupil. You can rotate your eyes um, 
inwards, which is called intorsion, or outwards, which is called extorsion. Normally, you wouldn't pay much attention to intorsion and, uh, and extorsion, but of course, uh, knowing the extraocular muscle functions, that is part of their function as well. Now, after we've defined eye movements for a single eye, we can look at both eyes and uh, look how both eyes are moving together. One of the movements, and that classifies conjugate eye movements, and conjugate eye movements is where we're going to spend most of the time uh, during the lecture series on, on um, sensory motor integration for the visual system is both eyes move in parallel. So the axis of both eyes shifts to the left, shifts to the right, together in parallel. Both eyes do the same, either look towards the right or towards the left. And of course, it would go in other directions as well. But again, we don't pay too much focus on this in the lecture series. When both eyes do this as they should, we call it conjugate eye movements. We have one class of eye movements where the eyes don't go the same direction but exactly the opposite and that would happen if you for example would ask your patient to look at the finger your fingertip and then you would move the finger closer and closer to the patient's nose and the eyes would still keep the fingertip on focus but in order to do this the axis of um, both eyes would converge and diverge and we call those movements Virgence movements in the class of uh, non-conjugate eye movements. The last class of eye movements you're going to be interested in, and that's probably the one you're going to be interested in most, is disconjugate eye movement. Disconjugate means there's something going wrong. And I just gave you a few examples. If the eyes are supposed to move towards the left, but only one eye does, the other doesn't, we call this disconjugate. So the conjugate movement does no longer work. You could do this the opposite uh, direction. One eye doesn't move, one eye moves, one eye doesn't move. And you can have this with the other eye. Same thing. It's not always 100% extinction of the movement, but if the eyes don't move in parallel as they were supposed to do, we call this disconjugate. And we have to find out what the pathological condition is underlying this. <clears throat> this shows you a section, an MRI section, and you see uh, the, um, the eyes in the orbit, and you know that the orbit has uh, this kind of cone shape. The eyeball is uh, at the outermost part of the orbit, and then of course you have most of it filled with adipose tissue and extraocular muscles. At the end of the orbit, you have a common tendinous ring, the annulus tendinosus, and uh, that is where all the rectus muscles uh, link to, and that defines pretty much their movements uh, when, the eye, when the extraocular muscles, the rectus muscles constrict, they move the eyes. Perpendicular to the rectus muscles, you have uh, the oblique muscles. And the oblique muscles uh, go more towards the nose, more or less perpendicular to the uh, superior and inferior rectus muscles. 
which means they pull in a different direction, and that has consequences, as we will see. So when we look at the individual function of those muscles, we have the medial and lateral rectus muscles, and, of course, we realize, it was too quick, they would do adduction and abduction towards the nose and away from the nose. When we look at the superior and inferior rectus muscles, they are most efficient when their axis is in parallel to the central axis through the eyeball uh, that goes straight through the pupil to uh, the fovea. When they pull, they will elevate and depress, and the most efficient way of doing it is when the eye is abducted by the lateral rectus muscle. The oblique muscles are most efficient when the eye is pointing towards the nose. And in this way, again, the uh, vector of the muscles is in parallel to the axis that goes straight through the eyeball from the pupil to the fovea. And they would also do uh, elevation and depression most efficiently in the adducted situation. When we summarize this and our interest in neurology is always to isolate the extraocular muscles. We're not interested in the whole concert of eye movements. We try to figure out what each one of them does. So we have, and we test usually by asking the patient to follow our finger, we test both eyes in parallel. And this way we test the lateral rectus of the right eye and the medial rectus of the left eye at the same time, if we turn upwards in this situation, we test the superior rectus muscle of the right eye and the inferior oblique muscle of the left eye. We do downwards, <laughs> the abducted eye, we have the rectus muscle most efficient, the adducted eye, we have the superior oblique muscles most efficient. And we can fill the gaps and have uh, all extraocular muscle functions. I just use a different color so we can differentiate uh, the testing procedures. When we look at the brainstem, we have some of the control units in there. You know already some of them. You have the nuclei of the uh, cranial nerves number three, the ocular motor, and four, the trochlear. Uh, located in the midbrain, more or less at the level of the superior colliculus for three and the inferior colliculus for four. We can look in the pons, that's where we have the abducens nucleus in the lower pons, and the neighboring regions also contribute, as we will see, and we will cover them both throughout the next uh, few lectures, which is the medulla and the cerebellum. So a lot of elements in there, and you can imagine for clinical diagnosis, that's a very useful arrangement because you pr can pretty much isolate um, dysfunction of any one of those areas by looking at eye movements. We also have cortical units involved. We have the frontal eye field, which is area number eight as uh, labeled by Kobini and Brodmann. And we have the parieto-occipital eye field, which is just at the junction of the parietal lobe and the occipital lobe. 
after we've defined all those elements, we now try to put them together in one of the conjugate eye movements, which is the saccadic eye movements. We use the saccadic eye movements when we uh, look at our visual environment, our eyes are never still or only still for short moments, then uh, they jump to another area of interest. So I might look to the camera at the ba very back, and then I might look to the front row, might look to, to the right, and my eyes would be darting uh, in either direction. Those uh, movements are saccadic eye movements. We also have a, uh, they are very fast. They're so fast, actually, you cannot see while they happen. You have to wait until the eyes reach the position, and then you can see anything uh, again. <coughs> and in between the saccadic movements, you have fixations where the focus stays on a certain element of your visual surround. <coughs> we try to work out the neuronal circuitry of the saccadic eye movements, and we can do a few things already in almost reverse engineering, so we know if the eyes should dart towards the right, what do we need? We need the right abducens. Right abducens nucleus sits in the pons. <coughs> we also need uh, to activate the left medial rectus through the ocular motor. So, and the ocular motor sits uh, in the superior portion of the midbrain. <coughs> in order to make this work, conjugately, those two need to talk to each other. And the way they talk to each other is one sets the rules, the other just follows, and the one that sets the rules is the nucleus of the abducens, and it sends fibers to the contralateral ocular motor. Those fibers ascend all the way from the lower pons to the upper midbrain. And they ascend in a tract that is called the, uh, the left medial, meaning close to the midline, longitudinal, all the way through the length of the brainstem uh, fasciculus. Left medial longitudinal fasciculus innervates the left ocular motor. The little crossing over at the bottom doesn't really count, so when you label whether it's the left MLF or the right MLF, it's the longitudinal fiber tract, not the crossing fibers that count. We can look at uh, the MLF, and I just uh, put all the slices we have in our atlas together from cranial nerve number six nucleus in the lower pons, as you see in the bottom left picture. And this uh, um, nucleus needs to talk to, or needs to send the fibers into the uh, um, MLF on uh, the left side of the brainstem, and then the left MLF goes up, and I had to few, put a few circles in, but it goes in a straight line all the way through. It always sits in the very back portion of uh, the brainstem close to the fourth ventricle or close to the aqueduct, as it is in the midbrain, and synapses on the ocular motor on the left. We can put in a lesion there. And we can have an, a question about this lesion as well.
When you look at those questions, you realize they're very short in the lecture, so you don't have to read um, uh, lengthy vignettes during the lecture. That would take too much time, so it's quick. It's within the context we're just uh, talking about, so that would not be a typical exam question, but of course it would use the th same thinking process as a typical exam question. So what does this lesion cause? As a general rule, as we had before, whenever the question pops up, feel free to talk to each other. I don't mind at all. If you're not clear, chat with your neighbors. Everyone made their decisions? Have you made your choices? Anyone still needs more time to click? Clickers have responded. Okay. Then we look at what the verdict is. All right. We had half of the class were in favor of D. What's the reason you picked D? The reason you picked D was, first of all, what structure is damaged and on which side? Well, we had talked already about uh, the medial longitudinal fasciculus, and that is exactly uh, the area we have damaged here. So left medial longitudinal fasciculus would innervate the left oculomotor nucleus. So we would expect the left eye does not adduct. And when does the left eye not adduct? When it's supposed to do, which is exactly situation D. The right eye abducts, looks towards the right, but the left eye does not go beyond the midline because it would need the activation through the left medial longitudinal fasciculus. So the majority of the class, or at least half of the class, Got it right. Now we need to think about the circuitry we build around this again. So we had already started with the circuitry with the oculomotor, the obducens, and the left MLF. But that is not all. Since we have voluntary control, uh, we want input through the cortex, and all our motor planning comes from the frontal lobe. So we would use our frontal eye field. It doesn't go directly 
uh, to the obducens. The obducens actually gets the input through the uh, uh, paramedian pontin uh, reticular formation. Oops. And this one, the PPRF, as we call it shortly, on the right, receives input from the left frontal eye field, area 8 in the cortex. That's where the decision comes from uh, to move those extraocular muscles. That is an essential circuitry, and as you can expect, um, it also has uh, consequences when we have any interruption, as we've seen before in this little example, a lesion of the left MLF, you could have a lesion of the PPRF, you could have a lesion of the abducens nucleus, uh, you could have a lesion of the frontal eye field, and some uh, eye movements would no longer work. This brings us right to the interesting part to our clinical correlations and how we find out. Well, how you find out is um, the easiest way is, and you don't need any tools for this, the age test. And we do exactly what we said before, how we can isolate uh, the functions of uh, the six extraocular muscles, and we move our finger in front of the patient in the shape of an H, and we test um, the left eye and right eye at the same time, although we don't test, uh, like we, when we do, for example, when we move the finger to the patient's right, we, move the, we test the right abducens, uh, nucleus and nerve, and the lateral rectus for the right eye, and we test uh, the medial rectus and oculomotor nerve and uh, MLF for the left eye. Very easy instructions to the patients. I think that uh, will be pretty obvious to think of, but you have to then watch if is one eye not following what it should do. <clears throat> what you also have, and I'll see okay, whether this works actually. Can I activate this now? I have to use another pointer, right? doesn't seem to work here. Do I need to use control? Control enter? No. We have to switch the laser off, right? Okay. Well, no, we don't. We don't go so far. But we go to the next slide, and we have the hyperlink here again. But this, this is a nonsense. We just, I just switched this stupid laser pointer off. I mean, that's just doesn't make any sense. Uh, arrow option visible. Here it goes. Okay, that's something. Ob obviously, the program developers have not thought about that you actually want uh, to work with this stuff rather than having a, a useless blur on the screen. So I apologize for this, but thanks uh, 
to the person in the first row. We got it all sorted. This is a nice uh, um, ice simulator that should help you uh, doing exactly what uh, we talked about. You can do the age taste test on a virtual patient. So you can move the cursor to one direction and the, the right eye abducts, the left eye abducts. You can move it up, you can move it down, you can go to the midline again, turn over to the other side, you go up and you're down and you check all the movements. The other nice thing in this uh, simulator is, and that's why we reposted uh, the slides because the hyperlinks did not work in the first instance. The secretary had printed the slides rather than saved as PDFs. So that should be working now. We can, for example, uh, take the superior rectus out of the equation. Oh, let's say, let's take the superior oblique out of the equation. All right. So we can take the muscle out of the equation, and then we can, you don't see anything on there? Okay. Don't use the useless pointer again. It, is this not moving? It has been moving, I see it. Ah. We have the cursor now. Thank you very much. <laughs> very good. All right. So, we knocked out now we knocked out two of them. We get the superior rectus back, superior oblique. The abduction looks pretty normal. Elevation, depression looks okay for both eyes. We move to the other side. Up still works normal. Down again. The right eye does not go beyond the midline. We could have done the same thing. Um, taken the trochlear nerve out and we see the same thing. I move up and down on the patient's right. Everything seems to be okay. I move up and down in the adducted position for the right eye and we see again eye does not go beyond the midline. Glad with the help of, uh, for the help of uh, both of you here in the lecture hall so you could see what I meant. And you can play with this, of course, back home. Now I have to find my presentation again. Okay, you should be back in the presentation. You don't like it this way. Okay. <laughs> That's a pretty useless system, isn't it? I hope we didn't lose all the um, clicker questions now. All right. <laughs> we could, we play with a little variation of the theme and we do the same test with a red filter in front of the right eye. So red and right goes together, starts with the same letter, red and right. And instead of the finger, we use a flashlight. This way, the patient should see, in theory, two pictures, two separate pictures, 
one red light with the right eye and one white light with the left eye. We can do the same test, but in order to do the test, I try to play with you a little bit through the situations. Remember from the previous lectures, you have the um, four quadrants of the vision field. We put a white light in the center, and I just ask you all, follow the white light. So I move the white light, and you follow the white light. Question is, where is the white light in your visual field? You obviously know where I moved it, but where is it in your visual field? If your eyes can follow, where is the light in your visual field? Okay, any more needs? A few more seconds. Otherwise, we look at the verdict. Oh, 50-50 chance. Where is the center of your visual field? Wherever you're looking at, exactly. Wherever you're looking at. If I look at the camera in the back, no matter how I turn my head, as long as my eyes are on the camera, the camera is in the center. I know when I'm standing here that the camera is to my right, but that doesn't mean the camera is in the right half of my visual field. The camera is just in the center because I look at it, right? That is the part that causes most confusion. So if you can follow with your eyes, and we took a white light, so that would represent your left eye of a healthy patient. If you can follow the light, you always see it in the center, no matter where the light moves. Same with the fingertip. The fingertip of the examiner would always be in the center if you can look towards it. If you cannot look towards it, then you have a problem. But if you can't look towards it, it always stays in the center. So, center was the correct answer. Only half of you, half of the class got it. We try again. This time we put a red light in. I will again move the red light. But in this case, your, eye is, your right eye is paralyzed. It will stay exactly at the crossing of those four quadrants right in the center. Don't move your eye. I still move the light to your left. But you cannot follow because something is wrong with your right eye. So you stay focused on the crossing. Where is the red light now in your visual field? Not relative to your head or whatever, only in your visual field. And 
you may start talking. I've put the question up. We have a, another clicker question. This time, I want to get We want to see whether we got the 100% now. And 87, so 13% of you are still uncertain. But yes, if the red light moves towards the left, but your eye cannot move, it appears on the left in your visual field of the right eye. It's the same thing as, which most of you will have seen, you've seen traffic cameras on TV, right? The traffic cameras are pointing uh, on a high bridge, for example. You see the traffic and the car starts on one side, room goes, goes across the picture, disappears from the picture, and wherever the car moves, that's where it moves on the picture, on the screen, right? Traffic from the opposite direction, well, car starts at the left, goes through the picture and disappears on the right. Because the camera, traffic camera doesn't move. Same thing applies to you. Okay, now we got the basics because now comes the fun part. So left of the center was, of course, the correct answer. What happens if both eyes cannot move in parallel, so you don't have uh, conjugate eye movements, you will see two pictures because the merging merges all the four quadrants just overlaps them, and what the patient will see is two lights. You know, because we introduced this, which one is in the center, which one is off the center, but of course, the patient might only tell you, I see two lights, one is white and one is red, and you ask the patient, well, where is the red relative to the white light? A patient will tell you it's to the left of the white light. Now, you know already, because you have done the examination, where did you move the light relative to the patient. So now you know which eye did not move. In this case, it was uh, the right eye did not move because the red light is off to the left, and you moved the light to the left. The consequence, of course, as we've illustrated, is diplopia. Double vision and we can look at this in this case I took a palm tree same thing when you see double what happens is uh, the axis of both of your eyes are not aligned to the same point in this case for the left eye the palm tree is in the center for the right eye the palm tree is left in the left periphery and when you merge those two pictures your brain will get you two palm trees instead of one. We can do the same procedure with a red filter. And again, 
visual field of the left eye will look white. Uh, the, the, the light will look white in the center. We have a red filter in front of the right eye, which then turns the light into a red light. We merge those two pictures, visual field of the left eye, visual field of the right eye, merge them in the cortex, and again, the patient has diplopia, sees two lights with the left um, with a red light to the left of the white light. Now we start with clinical case using exactly this. And we using, in this case, I have to admit, the deviations from the norm are obvious. They're not always as obvious. In, my, in the example I show you, um, one structure is completely knocked out, but in reality, it can easily happen that it's partially knocked out, and then it's much more difficult to see it with the naked eye, and you need the red glass test to analyze. So during primary gaze, patient looking straight towards the light. Where does the patient see the light? I split the question is not on yet. Um, just so you see, when you see the eyes of a patient, it's the eyes of a patient. It's not yours, uh, your eyes looking through the back of the head of the patient, through the patient's eyes. That is what you see. So you see the right eye to, your, to the left of the picture, the left eye to the right of the picture. You know this from anatomy. Spent much time on this. When you look at what the patient sees or what the patient tells you, Left and right are not mixed up. It's just, and that, but I still labeled it, but even without labeling, it would be clear that when the patient tells you, I see something in the center, well, it's in the center. If the patient tells you, I see something on the left, it's on the left. So no mix up with the directions. And we have the question, of course, combining those two. So two different views of the same situation. Up to you. That should be an easy one. We got already our responses. So, we're going to look at your verdict. All right. Well, I could convince 80%, but if the patient looks straight, the light is straight in front of the patient, the patient sees if vision is normal as the uh, picture of the eyes would suggest the patient sees one light and if you merge a white light with a red light you get a pink light okay and the pink light since the patient looks directly at it is in the center which is the correct answer okay we can go through the test and have the patient look towards the right What does the patient see? 
You can trust what you see in the eyes. Both eyes look towards the right. What does the patient see? Where is the light in the visual field of the patient? We got the answers in, so let's see. Ooh. Same thing we had before. The traffic camera doesn't move. The car moves to the right. Where is the car in the picture? Well, it's on the... Uh, it's on the right. If the camera would move, or if your eyes would move, we did this with a white light, you all looked, you all followed the light. Even though you knew it was to your left, it was still in the center of your visual field. Because as uh, we said, whatever look you look at is in the center of your visual field. So we have two lights in the center of the visual field, a red light and a white light. If they both merge in the cortex, it's a pink light in the center, which is the correct answer, and not to the right. We did not ask, where, is, where did the light go? Well, everyone knows it went to the right. We asked, where is the light in the visual field? That's a difference, big difference, because it depends where you look at. So it was A again. And we can play further. We have the patient look towards the left. So we move the flashlight to the patient's left. And as it seems, one eye moves, the other one doesn't. So, what do you expect now? Patient's supposed to look towards the left. One eye can follow, one eye does not. Discussion is up to you.
Okay, if you're uncertain, you can always, as I see over here, you can always try, say, this is the center of my visual field. And, and this is my light. Center of visual field, the light. I assume my eyes cannot move. Let's say I can even just use my, uh, whatever, right eye we said. Right eye does not move. Yeah. I move the light towards the left, but I cannot move my right eye, or I decide not to move it. Well, it appears to where it moved, to the left. Let's see what the verdict is. Okay, that got better. Yes, B is the correct answer. At least we got two-thirds of the class convinced now. B is the correct answer. The left eye can follow, so the white light stays in the center, no matter where the light goes, because that's where the person is looking at. The right eye does not follow, and the light moves towards the left, so it appears towards the left, and since it is seen through a red filter, it is the red light that appears off-center towards the left. And that was the correct answer. Okay, we had an improvement here. That was already pretty good. I know it's tricky, and the trickier thing is you easily get fooled by what you think where it is instead of just um, analyzing it through and playing it through. The eye cannot move. Something moves, it moves. The eye can follow. It always stays in the center. Very simple principle. We, yes. Yes. Red, right is always, uh, there's a convention just because it starts with the same letter. That's easy. We can have lesions now, and we can have a lesion of the MLF, and we just play with it. We know already if we have an MLF lesion on the right that could have been our patient here, uh, the adduction of the right eye is prevented. That was exactly what we call internuclear ophthalmoplegia. We could also think um, of a PPRF lesion on the right. This means uh, you have a gaze par paralysis towards uh, the right, and uh, the lesion prevents both eyes turned towards the right. Is also a possibility. You could also extend it uh, to the cortex, but you could also have a bigger lesion in the same region, somewhere in the mid-pons, if you want, that includes the PPRF on the right and the MLF on the right. All you need to do then is combine what the individual lesions uh, would have done. So the MLF lesion on the right prevented the right eye to adduct. The PPRF lesion on the right prevents both eyes uh, from rightward gaze. If you have both together, you see there's only uh, very little left, and that's why we call it from all those uh, two eyes movements, only um, half is remaining, and we call this a one and a half syndrome, because one eye is completely knocked out, the other eye is knocked out by 50% of its movement, so this person, person can only look with the left eye towards the left, uh, deviating from 
the mid position and not anything more. With this one, we finished for the first lecture. Thanks again for your help in the uh, display, and we're going to start again in 10 minutes.